great to be with you today to share another message out of the book of Romans in this sermon series that we have been tracing through all summer and now into the fall. Uh, Today we're going to look at this reading from the end of Romans chapter 9 into the first few verses of Romans chapter 10. Paul writes these words, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based upon works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness and have, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. So we're circling back into the very heart of this letter that a man named Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, wrote to the followers of Jesus in the first century of city of Rome. And in doing so, we want to remind ourselves of the powerful and irreducible truth that we are only made right with God by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. So way back this summer when Pastor Tig was actually developing this sermon series, he wrote in the introductory paragraph about today's worship, which gets sent out via email earlier each week, he wrote this question, have you ever felt like you were on the outside looking in. And that question, as I was preparing for today, got me, got me thinking about, about an essay. Well, it was actually a lecture that was delivered by C.S. Lewis at King's College London in 1944, and the title of that lecture was The Inner Ring the inner ring. So I want you to imagine for a moment a room full of aspiring young university students listening to Lewis describe a powerful phenomenon that I think is still very much alive today. And that phenomenon is this. It is the pervasive human desire, the driving need to be in to be included, to be counted, to be recognized as part of some ever-elusive inner ring. I mean, you know what I'm talking about now, that circle of people who are in whatever group you're in, seen as the right people, the people who are in the know, the critical players in this or that situation. So listen, this is a quote from his lecture. Lewis writes, 
I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Now, perhaps we can think of this back to the days when, when we were in school, maybe in, in high school. You remember how that was. You had, you had the cool kids, and maybe you had the smart crowd, and then there were the arts and, and music and drama bunch and the, and the athletes and, and a few of us motorheads. And there were all kinds of rings or groups. Some of them, I suppose, were frowned upon uh, by the adults as not being the most healthy in the world, maybe for good reason, maybe not. But if you think about that experience, it carries through into our workplaces, it carries through into our community, and it even carries through here into the church. That to find your way in to this board or that committee or some other function has a very powerful pull on us. Now, interestingly, Lewis argues that the existence of these inner rings is not a bad thing in and of itself, that we actually need them in order to be able to get things done and that it is in fact within such rings that close personal relationships where friendships develop. No, the problem he writes, and again I quote, is our longing to enter them, our anguish when we are excluded, and the kind of pleasure that we feel when we get in. He goes on. We hope, no doubt, for tangible profits from every inner ring that we penetrate, power, money, liberty to break the rules, avoidance of routine duties, evasion of discipline. But all of these would not satisfy if we did not get, in addition, the delicious sense of secret intimacy. So here was what I proposed to do this morning. I want to borrow this idea from Lewis, this, this desire, this, this longing that human beings have to gain admittance into some elusive inner ring to explore the text that I just read to you, see what we might be able to learn about ourselves and even more importantly, what we can learn about God and about his love for us in Christ Jesus. So we step into the text. Look, I think that the ultimate and very real human need to be in, to be accepted, to belong, actually goes all the way back to the very beginning when we were first to created to be in the real presence, to be in the real face-to-face -face presence of God. And I will contend this morning that every human being, whether they know it or not, by virtue of the way humanity was designed, longs to be in with God. The problem arises with how we go about seeking to enter. So God's plan 
from the very beginning was that it would be by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that, we, that he would rescue and restore all things, that is the entire creation, including humanity, to be able to dwell in his presence permanently. Now, God's plan was that through Israel, he would reveal himself to the world as the ultimate solution to everything that has gone wrong. And so he chooses Abraham, a man with no resume, a man with no credentials, a man who was as good as dead, had no offspring and no hope of producing any offspring and promised him that through one of his descendants, the Messiah would come and he would make the world right. Rescuing Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt, God gave them his law and a stunningly beautiful worship life where he would make himself visibly and tangibly present in their midst. First in the tabernacle as they wandered around in the wilderness and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. And that he would pour out so much blessing onto them that he would make them the object of enemies, the object of envy of everyone else in the world. The nations were to see the beauty of how these people related to each other, how they worked together, how they had formed a society where there was justice for all, especially for the most vulnerable, for the widow and for the orphan. They, they had a society where beauty flourished in art and in music and in literature and in architecture in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, their capital city, would be a city set on a hill as a beacon of what being in God's presence can look like. But I need you to listen carefully because the nation of Israel was never the end plan. Never, ever, ever was it God's intention to create a system by which Israel or any other group of people would, by their obedience, be the example to the rest of the world of how they could work their way into God's presence. Don't make no mistake, Israel was the key part in executing the Messiah plan. But rather than cherishing their role, rather than living up to their calling, they did, they did what fallen human beings always do. They took God's gifts, they took God's rich blessing, and they used them as evidence that they alone had gotten into God's presence and the rest of the world was out. If you turn religion into a system by which you can work your way in with God, you know what you'll get. You will create self-righteous hypocrites that wind up driving people away from God rather than drawing them in. 
Now, I would suggest to you that is what we see all over so-called Christianity today. People who are religious in every sense of the word, who actually believe themselves to be in with God so that they become almost completely blind to their own sin and they develop smug, condescending attitudes toward others. And I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that all we need to do is get rid of religion and that would fix the problem. Because it turns out that by our created design, all human beings are inherently religious and they are in fact seeking their way in, whether they call it God or not, to something that will satisfy the deepest longings of their heart to be happy and to feel safe. Pursue the religion of pop culture. Look, you know, whatever, whatever is in vogue in our little moment in time. And you will find it yourself turning into either a bleeding heart do-gooder who believes in the myth of progressivism. That is that if we just try a little harder and we just pour a little bit more money into education and opportunity, we can make the world a better place. Or you will turn into a hard-hearted, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps individualist who also happens to believe in progressivism that the world will get better when we have bullied enough people into behaving themselves. And if you want to see divisive chaos... Mix self-reliance, self-righteous religion together with pop culture. Look, I am using stereotypical exaggerations for the purpose of making a point. Why? Because the solution to finding our way in with God is not religion or the latest and greatest social theory of pop culture. God's plan from the very beginning was to do something so absolutely dumbfoundingly unbelievable and unexpected that all people would stumble over it and fall on it and be broken into pieces for their sinful desire to try and get in with God by their own merit and worthiness. Look, immediately after Adam and Eve turned away from God in the garden, in fact, before that ever happened, God already had a plan to rescue and to restore, to bring his creation fully and permanently back into his presence. And that plan from the beginning was always by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Yeah, sometimes I think we modern-day believers understand the Old Testament with all of its twisted story of the nation of Israel, that that was somehow God's first but his failed attempt to get humanity back in with him through rules and regulations. And that Jesus is just sort of a backup plan. 
No, God set the Jesus plan in motion before he ever created the world. Jesus is the stumbling block to anyone who tries to hold on to their effort to be in with God. Now look, this is not theoretical theology for Paul. You need to know that he is crying out from his own breaking heart over the members of his own family. Perhaps his parents, his siblings, his aunts and uncles, his classmates, the people that he had grown up with because they were people who were ignorant of God's perfect faithfulness to his promise to send a Messiah to rescue and to redeem the whole world by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and they were trying to make their own way in with God because that's what fallen human nature always does. It will even take the things of God and twist them into the things that we do to establish our way in. So think about it. What, what do we sometimes look to as the evidence that, oh, I deserve to be in? I read my Bible, I do my devotions, I pray daily, I go to church weekly, I give money generously, I volunteer my time at church and in the community, I work hard, I pay my own way, I oppose abortion, I believe in the biblical definition of gender and marriage. Make the list as long as you want. None of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but people just like Israel they so easily become those things which we then imagine establish our way in rather than being expressions of already being in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Look, Paul had been very zealous for God but without the knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue and restore the whole world through Israel. And that turned him into an angry and a violent person. As one commentator put it, zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. And fanatics are people who say, don't confuse me with the facts. And besides, all of your facts are fake news anyway. Zeal without knowledge of Jesus can lead people to terrorism and to the slaughter of innocent people. Self-righteous religion cannot get you in with God. Pop culture is a miserable substitute for God. Pop culture mixed with self-righteous religion can produce zeal that becomes fanatical. And so, are we simply out? No, look. God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone is the end. It is the end. It is the end. 
of trying to get in with God by your own effort. As one preacher put it better than I ever could, all you need is nothing. (laughs) Unfortunately, this nothing can be very hard for us to come by. (laughs) It requires surrender. You see the word submit. And that's not something we are very good at. But the way in, the way in with God is open to us new every single day. So there's an old story about a young pastor who preached his very first sermon at his first congregation, and it was a great sermon, and the congregation was so very pleased with him. And then he preached the same sermon again four weeks in a row. And they got a little concerned, and they sent the elders to talk with him about it. And the young pastor was surprised, and he said, well, you haven't done anything I said in that sermon. Why should we move on? (laughs) Look, so here it is again. Here it is again. Listen. The Holy Spirit is coming to you in the words of this sermon. He is coming to you every time that you read your Bible or a devotion or you attend a Bible study. He's coming to bring you in to the presence of God by faith alone in Jesus alone. The Holy Spirit is there every time that you see, taste, touch, hear, or smell water and you remember your baptism. I got to remember my baptism for the whole second half of the UCF football game last night. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is there every time that you eat the bread and drink the cup and receive Jesus' true body and blood into yourself. Every single time that you have a conversation with a fellow follower of Jesus about your faith. The Spirit is there opening the way to be in with God by faith alone in Jesus alone. And you know what that will produce? That will produce zeal with knowledge. And zeal with the knowledge of Jesus in your awakened heart will give you the strength and the courage to trust in Jesus even and especially when your life is not going the way that you think it should. Zeal with the knowledge of Jesus in your awakened heart will give you self-control. It will give you discipline to be able to build your life and to do so especially when things are going so extraordinary well that you are tempted to think you did it all yourself and that you can go it alone from here. Zeal with the knowledge of Jesus in your awakened heart will create in you a passion to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, people. In other words, to obey the law of God, but not out of fear, not out of trying to get in your own way, but out of sheer joy and gratitude that you, my friends, are already in by faith alone, in Jesus alone. Zeal 
with the knowledge of God in your awakened heart will make it almost impossible for you to keep your mouth shut this week about this love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. The deepest longing of the human heart is to be in with God. And it is satisfied in Jesus so that you can leave here today and go and live the life of freedom and joy and sacrifice and renewal that we're always talking about around here. Here's our weekly awakening question for this week. Since by faith you are safe within this inner circle of God's family, how might you consider sacrificing for someone else this week? Since you're safe in the circle of God's family, how might you consider sacrificing for another this week? God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.